You're listening to Fundraising Illuminated, a podcast where development officers, advancement services professionals, and other fundraising leaders offer their views on subjects related to fundraising. I'm your host, Erin Lynch-Moran, a partner and co-founder of The Solus Group. We are a fundraising analytics and data modeling firm. If this is your first time listening, welcome. Please be sure to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Fundraising Illuminated, a podcast by The Solus Group. We're so happy to have you today, so thanks so much for joining us. We're back with David Lively for the second time. He's the Senior Associate Vice President for Alumni Relations and Development at Northwestern University. And David's also known for authoring a book called Managing Major Gift Fundraisers, A Contrarian's Guide. In that book, David makes an argument for why he believes that major gift fundraising portfolios should be much smaller than what's typical at most institutions. I asked him to talk about that, and here's what he had to say. In 2017, you wrote a book called Managing Major Gift Fundraisers, A Contrarian's Guide. So in your book, one of the central arguments that you've made, and it's something that I think gets debated a lot in conversations around major gift fundraising, you are devoted to the idea that a smaller portfolio that is really optimized for the very best prospects is superior to a larger portfolio. And I just wanted to ask you to explain why that is. Yeah, the old standard was that fundraisers should have something like 150 people in their portfolios. There's a thing called Dunbar's number. And it was founded by an anthropologist named Robin Dunbar. And Dunbar's number suggests that there's a cognitive limit of the number of people one can maintain stable relationships with. And they think the, the number is 150. I think most of those relationships are tertiary. They're not really that close. Mm-hmm. And when I got into the business, I had a portfolio of at least 150 or more. And I think there's some real interesting and perverse incentives that we've had over the years to have large portfolios. Mm-hmm. The first one is your goals were set up like this at most institutions. It was like, Okay, you make your visits and then you raise a certain amount of money. Well, how they didn't know how much money you raised. A lot of times it was the amount collectively raised by everyone to whom you were assigned. In other words, everyone in your portfolio. So naturally, you're going to want to be assigned to as many people as you can who are giving 5,000, 10,000, 25,000, whatever, as much annual fund money as you can, plus the major gifts you raise. Because then you're collectively responsible for all that money, right? So that would help you toward your goal. So that's a perverse incentive because a lot of those people you're never talking to. Right. So we started looking at this. At DePaul, I remember we had top 20 next 50 or top 25 next 50. So we we scaled down from from 150 to 75. Mm -hmm. But I realized within a couple of years, that still wasn't sufficient. And I now believe that somewhere around the range of 40 and fewer is probably the right number. I was watching a really fascinating documentary on art collectors. There's a guy named Stefan Edlis who lives here in Chicago. And I remember he said something fascinating on this. He said, I only collect the work of 40 artists at a time because I can't pay attention to more than 40 artists at one time. If I want to collect someone new, I need to get rid of someone else in the system because I really want to be able to understand and pay attention to that many. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. It's sort of arbitrary because I think that was the number that for me was some of the magic number. And then he talked to a hedge fund guy in town. This hedge fund manager said, yeah, I'll only allow my analysts to analyze 40 companies at a time because once they get over that number, they're not as good at it. Mm. And it goes to really bandwidth. How much time and energy do you have to pay attention 
in, in this case to, you know, if you're a hedge fund analyst, uh, how many companies can you follow effectively and actually understand their business model? So think about this for a minute. The typical number of years in a campaign, let's just call it seven, eight, nine years in a campaign. The total number of business days in a year, after you take out weekends, vacations, holidays, is somewhere around 220 to 230 business days, right? Mm -hmm. Not a lot of days. So if that's the case and you're going to be making roughly 10 to 15 solicitations for major gifts in a year, that's basically one every 15 to 22 business days. Most people will say, well, fundraisers can do more than 10 to 15. I'm like, well, if they're doing annual fund asks, of course they can. They can do hundreds. Right. But if you're asking for major gift, the person has to think about how to structure that gift. If they can write a check for it and it's too easy, you probably didn't ask enough. Right. And so you're not really working toward the optimal ask for that particular donor and for your particular institution. So I'm talking about a gift of, of assets, not a gift of income. It's not something that typically they write out of their checkbook. It has to be somewhere where they probably have to think about how to structure it, how are they going to pay for it. And for those types of donors, you're trying to figure out to match their passion with your mission and you're trying to connect the dots in some way. And that takes effort, right? And so to be able to make the optimal ask, it'll make, it'll raise the biggest gift. It'll make the donor feel really excited about the gift that they've made. That's going to have a real impact on the institution. I think 10 to 15 is a legitimate number as, a, as an average. Some will do more, many will do less. So that's right. if we can if we can agree to that. So think about this for a minute. If the average number of prospects in a portfolio was 125, which is what Vince Whaley said a few years ago, it'll take about nine to 13 years to solicit them. All right, so the average campaign is seven, eight, nine years long. That's mm. longer than the average campaign. Right. And then to think that beyond that, to think that you know who you're gonna solicit nine years from now or eight years or seven years or five years or anything like that is absurd. Yeah. In my opinion, I think you really only know about your prospects over the next 36 months. So what you're trying to do is to prioritize your prospects using three criteria. The first one is giving capacity. How much can they give, right? So you, of course you're gonna to try to go for the biggest gifts because that's what we all wanna do because we wanna be able to support the institution in the best possible way. The second thing is affinity. What is an individual's affinity toward your institution? And if not, can they build affinity for your institution? The third one I think is the one that's missing, and that's time. During which time frame will you be able to convince them to make a gift, right? So you look at those three things, and then you prioritize all of your prospects for the entire institution based on those three criteria. Right. And I think that will allow you to think about why a small portfolio, because if you're assigned to people and you're thinking, well, I'm not going to solicit them for nine years, guess what? Nobody else will. And that's right. the thing that kills me. So we started talking about something called portfolio slack. There's just so much slack in someone's portfolio. I even wrote an article for Case about this. I remember I was up with my oldest daughter and I was feeding her in the middle of the night. And I remember watching these weird TV shows on Lifetime or something. And, and there's a show called Hoarders. And there's people who have all this stuff in their house. And I'm like, that's my major gifts team. They're all hoarding prospects, right? <laughs> and I just remember thinking they need to slim down all of the prospects in their portfolio to the people they can really pay attention to. In our system, we've verified that very directly. Mm -hmm. It's two types, two categories of people exclusively. People who have already made a gift to the university that you've already solicited, they already said yes, and you're stewarding them, right? Mm -hmm. And in some cases, you may go back again next year or the year after or some point in the very near future to ask them for a gift. So you're going to keep them in your portfolio, right? The other group is people that you plan to solicit 
over the next 36 months, roughly. And in our system, you can only be assigned to someone if you A, have met them, B, do you actually have a plan to solicit them? So those two categories of so donors and people you're hoping will be donors are the only ones you can be assigned to. And we did some analysis at Northwestern that was fascinating. What I discovered was the average portfolio at Northwestern is about 115 per fundraiser. So slightly smaller than the typical portfolio, according to Vince Whaley Flusser. 45% of our assigned prospects who were seven, eight, and nine figure prospects, and they've been assigned continuously for at least three years or more, in some cases, even up to a decade. And 45% of those prospects had never been contacted in that three year period because people were assigned to two, their portfolios were too big. Right. And then if you look at six figure prospects between 100 and 999,000, 55% of those prospects had not been contacted during that three year period. And guess how many prospects fundraisers typically spoke to who were there in their portfolios? 40. Wow. I know. And so if you think about it, if the average portfolio size was 115, they're only talking to 40, they were ignoring 65% of their portfolios. They were only talking to 35% of the people assigned to them. And so what I said was, let's shrink your portfolios and, and pay attention to it. And the amazing thing happens, this has two effects. And the, I think both are really critical. The first thing that happens is fundraisers start paying attention to people that they can solicit. Usually they get see a big name and they put it in their portfolio and then they proceed to forget about it for the next three years, right? That's what fundraisers do. I used to do that constantly. So right. I'm, I was guilty of this for years. But if you're only assigned to people who've either made a major gift and you're going to solicit them again, or people who you plan to solicit, then you're going to have to narrow your focus. And it forced people to really shrink their portfolios and focus on the best prospects based on capacity, affinity, and timing, not just capacity, right? Right. Um, it was those three things in combination. So that was the first thing is they became very focused and all of a sudden they spent their time with people who were going to be solicited. And so guess what? They started making more asks and they started raising more gifts, a lot more gifts, right? And that was evident. We had a significant increase. The other thing that happens, and this is equally important, is they released all these prospects they had been assigned to for years. And guess what? All these great prospects were now available to be seen because before they had been off limits. And the thing that was astonishing when you think about this, think about the logic of this for a minute, Aaron. Prospects who are in a portfolio are usually removed from all kinds of correspondence from the university. Right. Fundraisers will say, don't send my, anyone assigned to me an annual fund appeal. I'm going to solicit them. They don't, but that's what they would say. Right. You don't invite them to these events. I want to talk to them. Right. They were getting almost every place I've worked in the last 26 years, prospects who were assigned but lying fallow were often getting less attention than $50 donors. These are your best prospects, presumably based on their capacity rating, but you're ignoring them, right? So we release these into the this open pool is what I call it, which is a pool of prospects that everybody has access to. We created air traffic control systems to make sure we're not all talking to the same person on the same day. And then we started going after them. And as a new fundraiser, I was really content on not taking anyone's prospects. I came in here as an associate VP and I didn't want to come in and like, oh, I'm going to take all the best prospects and make them mine. Mm -hmm. And that's how I'm going to raise, raise a lot of money. No, I, I could see the blind spots. And because we released prospects, I started finding people. I find these diamonds in the rough that were completely ignored. And my first big gift here was someone whose lifetime giving was $450,000. Their single largest gift was $50,000. It had been a few years before. They were mad at the university when I got here. They hadn't been contacted in two years. 
And within six months, he gave $15 million. And he's since given additional funds. He's given $29 million to the university, and he's become a trustee. Oh, my gosh. $450,000 lifetime since 1970, when he graduated, to now $29 million. And then another I found who had been assigned for years to someone at one of our schools, husband and wife, both graduates, one from law, one undergrad, and um, their biggest gift was $5,000. Never been contacted by the person they were assigned to for three years. Released them, and I, I found it a week later because I saw a Google alert that this person bought a home down in the city. Looked them up, called and said, hey, to the person who had been assigned, hey, I'm just curious, looks like you released this prospect. What's up? Well, I never really reached out to them. Fortunately, they were doing the right thing. They were, they were shrinking their portfolios. Um, I reached out once via email, never got a response. I'm like, okay, that was at the law school. I called the athletics office where this couple have been giving for, you know, since 85, since they graduated. Not big gifts, $5,000 a year, right? Just small right. annual gifts. And I called the athletics office. And the guy who was at the time um, running the athletic fundraising when I arrived in 2012 said, Oh, yeah, they're great. I, they call for tickets every year. And I, I said, well, you ever talked about a gift? No, no, they're assigned to law. Right? Right. So you can see this is the thing. They're, they're giving all they're giving, except for about like 2% was going to athletics. They were assigned to law because the husband had a law degree. And so I reached out that afternoon and got a, got a response immediately. And it took me a while to set up the meetings because they're a very busy couple. And they've since bought a major league franchise. But, you know, they also gave us $40 million about a year later. Oh my gosh. So they went from 5,000 to 40 million. And so the thing is that, you know, I'm not saying this is going to happen to every school, but there are a ton of good prospects hiding in plain sight. Mm -hmm. And the problem is we're just not paying attention to them because there's this gross inefficiency because our portfolios are too big. Right. And so when you do two things, when you focus fundraisers on the people they care about, that they can actually solicit in a re realistically solicit in a, in a reasonable time frame, which is 36 months or fewer. And you release good prospects for others to go see. You're now able to comprehensively prioritize the entire portfolio for the university. You have completely sold me on the logic here. So I believe that small portfolios are the way to go. I think you're right that it's the only way you can truly focus on people in the way that they deserve and in the way yeah. you can be strategic. I have also thought a lot about, because my whole career has been about serving fundraisers and helping them be yeah. successful. And I know why they don't want to do that. They don't want to do that because they're scared that if they don't have people in their portfolio, they will forget about them. And the irony is, of course, as you're pointing out, these people that are in their portfolio are being ignored. And even more so because the rest of the institution is not communicating with them because they're being held in reserve for the fundraiser. So to such people, I would say, and you can contact me if you're curious about this, but I have thought a lot about this and there are ways you can do both. You don't have to use prospect assignment to make sure you're remembering people you need to remember. It's much better to create systems. And that's why one of the reasons technology is so great, create a system that reminds you periodically to make sure you're reaching out to those people. So they're still getting communication. They're still getting treated well. They don't personally know whether they're assigned to you or not, and it doesn't matter. But the people that are assigned to you should be the ones that you're really gearing up to solicit, or as you said, giving them the stewardship for the really big gifts so that you can ask them again. That's exactly it. And the thing is, I talked to a lot of people that I'm not assigned to, including people that others are assigned to, because that's the way this works 
The other thing that I think is important is people think about a portfolio as a static thing. It's a dynamic thing. It's a dynamic list. And it shouldn't look the same today as it did a month ago. A, ideally, if you're actually asking for gifts and you have a goal of raising somewhere between, you know, 12 and 15 asks a year, that's one a month. So by definition, you shouldn't necessarily look the same one month to the next because you should have some activity there. The other thing is I take on prospects all the time and then decide after the fact at some point, you know what? I don't think this person's a major gift prospect. I may still correspond with them. I may pass them on to another colleague who I think has a better chance of getting a gift. So the best thing you can do as a manager is sometimes give some of your best prospects to other people who are new. Make sure that, you know, say, look, I'm going to go introduce you to this person. I'm going to take you to see this individual. And then you pass that relationship on. And the person that you pass, they may not know that. They may still call you. And I don't have to be the person assigned to that prospect to solicit them. I solicit people all the time I'm not assigned to. Um, and that's fine. I also am assigned to people that I don't solicit. People I'm assigned to are the people I'm managing the relationship for the institution, thinking what's best for them. Right. And so I've had any number of my best prospects solicited by other fundraisers in the office because I think they're better positioned to ask for that particular gift. And as a manager, you want to set up your folks. You want to think about how do you position your team to be successful? And so it's about making sure every person that works with me and my team, I want to make sure they have, does their portfolio position them to achieve their goals? Right. And it's not about visits and dollars. It's about raising more gifts and making more asks. As you may have noticed, David had me convinced of his argument for small portfolio sizes. Was he able to convince you? We'd love to hear what you think. So drop us a line. Send us an email at podcast at the and let us know what you think about the optimal size of a major gift fundraising portfolio. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Join us next week when we talk to Howard Hevener, Executive Director of Annual Programs at the University of California at Berkeley. We're going to ask Howard whether unrestricted giving is going away, so you don't want to miss that. To make sure you catch every episode, please be sure to subscribe. Thank you for listening to Fundraising Illuminated. We hope you'll join us for more engaging conversations on development topics. This podcast is produced by The Solus Group, proud Tableau partner and fundraising analytics firm. At Solus, we take the stress out of fundraising by helping our clients find their best prospects, manage their portfolios proactively, and make sure they take advantage of fundraising opportunities through the use of analytics tools. If you'd like to be a guest on Fundraising Illuminated, or if you'd like to share your thoughts on what our guests have to say, please visit our website at www.thesolusgroup.com and click on the link that says podcast. Thank you again for joining us and have a great rest of your day.